Welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. I'm currently sat in the Marriott Hotel in Denver, Colorado, for the annual conference of the Sports Lawyers Association 2017 with Paul Green. Many of you will know he's a Law and Sport editorial board member. He's a leading figure in anti-doping and represents clients in athletics, football, baseball, ice hockey and a whole bunch of other different sports on anti-doping and disciplinary matters. Paul is the principal of Global Sports Advocates and uh, I wanted to talk to you, Paul, about what you think are some of the key issues at the moment or trends in the anti-doping movement. Uh, both internationally and domestically in the states. So to start with, what, what would you say are some of the issues that really that are coming up consistently that you maybe don't think are talked about that much or highlighted that much in the mainstream media? Well, I think you always worry about access to justice. Uh, first of all, it's not a, a right to have a lawyer necessarily, and a lot of athletes don't think they can pay or afford one, and maybe they'll get a longer sanction than they otherwise would have if they'd had a lawyer. That's something that's troubling because every case should always be decided on the merits of what the athlete did. And I know of cases, if you look at the list all the time, where if I represented the person, they would have gotten maybe one year and they end up with four years, just depending on the facts and circumstances of the case. And so that's always a continuing fight is to try to figure out a way, I think, all of us uh, benefit from having lawyers involved in the cases representing athletes. The system works better from from every side when that happens. So, so being plain devil's advocate, right? There'll be some people listening to this going, well, of course, you're an anti-doping lawyer, so of course you're going to advocate for, for more lawyers to be involved, right? Because it's, it's good business. But um, can you just go into a little bit more detail about why that is important? Because I, I would agree with you on this uh, point that the representation is so important. It can be quite fatal for an, for an athlete who's in particularly anti-doping, but in other matters as well. They have a strong case they can go before a disciplinary hearing or an arbitration hearing and their whole case can fall apart just for the fact that they don't have someone who knows what they're talking about. Right. Each case is unique on its own. But if you don't have a lawyer who understands this stuff, you might not identify something that isn't necessarily obvious. And as an example, last year I did a case with Ricardo de Buen where we looked at certain things in a lab report that looked suspicious and we asked for a second opinion and it turned out that athlete, Paola Pliego, had a false positive. And if she hadn't had us representing her, perhaps that never would have been identified. Perhaps she would have been banned. Uh, other cases I've had over the years where athletes have walked away with a no-fault finding. Sorry, sorry, just for those people who aren't familiar sure. with it, probably just worth just clarifying. I know it's an obvious one, but the false positive, just to explain. That means the lab read, the, read, read everything wrong, and they thought that she had something in her system that was a banned substance when it wasn't. So it's, just, so it's been able to have the experience and also to spot patterns or errors as they occur. It is, and I think it's important, forgetting about lawyers, just to have athletes have the chance to have qualified science experts. The other side, whether it be an anti-doping organization or a federation or a WADA, has the top science experts in the anti-doping world at their disposal. And the way the rules are written, athletes cannot use those experts. Athletes cannot... Um, hire those experts if they want to hire them to back their side of a story. And there are less people not in the water world who are qualified to handle those cases. And you have to have a science expert as an example to establish the likely source of a banned substance, which in many cases is the difference between a very long ban and a, perhaps a pretty short one. 
Yeah, no, the, you're not the only person to say this type of thing. We've got Nat Sinclair who's written an article for us on, on part of that. And uh, obviously, um, uh, Marjolaine Verrett obviously writes a lot about the, the balance between science and, and law and where that balance meets. And I think David Cowan of the um, King's Lab also talks about this, which is the, the difficult role that no, I think, because not only just for, I think it's, would you agree that it's more of a problem for the athletes, but it's also a problem with finding the right experts. It's also a problem for, for the federations as well, because as we're getting more and more scientifically focused, there's the fewer and fewer people really understand this to the levels um, in which we're going into now. I know that some of the scientists are saying that the, 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 the amounts that we're testing for for certain substances are so low, uh, 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 it's such a low threshold, that you could, uh, almost the amounts that they're testing for would have no performance enhancing benefit. Right, and that's another topic we could get into is should there be some thresholds for some of these substances? Because at five nanograms per milliliter, it's such an infinitesimal amount. It's thousands of a nanogram. It's so small, it could never have any performance enhancing value. And the theory being that it's a trace, right? So the reason right. why it's there, they go, okay, there was a trace of something, therefore, but you could get end up in this position. I always, um, so I'm sure we've talked about this before, but you can uh, get a situation where someone is legitimately doesn't know where a substance has come from, with no idea, and because of the burden of proof that is on them to prove where it's come from, they're going to get some sort of sanction, even though they may have done nothing wrong. They legitimately may have done. You probably had cases like that. Oh, of course, it it happens. It happens pretty frequently, and uh, you know sometimes you have cases where you have to figure it out. What I love about what I do is that it's a puzzle. And every time it's a new puzzle, and you have to figure out the puzzle um, to get to the end, to get to the ultimate result, which is it's a results-generated oriented world. You have to get the result for the client. Uh, and you know, I always tell people it's, it's two things to this job. One is getting the opportunity, and two is doing something with it. And the second part is much more important than the first, although you can't get to the second part without the first part. But uh, creating a record of, of success, I think, is what ultimately allows you to have sustained uh, ability to stay in this world of doing anti-doping cases. And coming back to the the, uh, the justice point, and you know, we talked about this before. In terms of one of the things that we heard about in the discussion earlier, we had Howard Jacobs, um, Travis Tigart, um, Maddie, and I'm awful with the panelists. And Michael Leonard. Michael Leonard. And obviously uh, Richard McLaren right. um, talking on anti-doping, and one of the points that came up was uh, global harmonisation, which comes up pretty much every time someone talks about um, anti-doping at the moment. From your perspective, what are you seeing for some of the clients you represent? What are you seeing in terms of true global harmonisation, or how close are we to any global harmonisation? It's it's a great goal, but to get there, I, I'm not sure we'll ever actually truly get to that point. If you look at the lists uh, of sanctions and, and first instance hearings that will occur in small countries, there is not a lot of knowledge uh, on these panels. The panelists aren't even lawyers sometimes, and they don't have true hearings that we think of in a very sophisticated system in the United States that you would have in other parts of the world. And so that sometimes leads to two things. One time, sometimes it leads to athletes getting sanctions that are too short because they're trying to do a, a, a look the other way for their athlete, or it lends itself to a situation where the athlete is, is treated too harshly because that small federation or, or, or country wants to show why they're tough on doping. Mm -hmm. 
And so in either instance, is, this, is the overall system served properly? Because you want to have that harmonization, meaning that sanction is in line with similar behavior that happened in other parts of the world and other sports. And it doesn't always happen that way. And I don't think you said it was small countries, but I think in, it's probably a, 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 maybe a better word is, is countries with undeveloped um, or less mature um, legal systems. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's young countries yeah. in terms of the anti-doping system is a yeah. better way to say it. Um, so how do you think, what, what would you advocate then to, to try and resolve that problem? What do you think is, how can we take, if you, if you could, if there was something you could do, wave a wand and take some, you know, or if not a wand, just have one thing you could implement right now. Abracadabra, boom. Yeah, yeah, exactly, it's done. What would you do to try and fix that well, I like the, the last year there was a, this rumor floating that CAS was going to take over all cases in the first instance and everything would go to the Court of Arbitration for Sport in different offices around the world and there would be no more international federations and no more uh, smaller, younger countries or younger organizations, anti-doping organizations or even IFs that might not do a lot of cases. Mm. They would be no longer in the picture. All the hearings would be done by CAS. I'm not sure logistically that's possible. But I think it would be a great thing if that happened. Because there's some standardization, some yeah. some form of independence there. Um, the one thing that, that, that comes up time and time again at the moment, which I, you know, for some of the um, elite athletes, they have no problems with funding the legal costs. In terms of um, CAS hearing, and you know, obviously I've interviewed Matthew Reeb, um, we've had Brent Nowicki you know, talk uh, at many of our conferences, um, Despina writes articles for us. You know, the CAS provides a good function, I believe. There could be improvements there. However, it's not that cheap. In terms of legal processes and le- as in terms of civil disputes, it's cheap. But it's still not that cheap, is it? No. You, there's a legal aid process, and I've had clients get legal aid. You have to submit a pretty detailed financial disclosure, and then a determination is made by the ICAS as to whether or not you get financial aid. And normally what that really means, uh, legal aid, is you don't have to advance costs. It's a weird system because if it's an international federation decision, you don't have to advance costs at CAS. But if it's an anti-doping organization decision, you do have to advance costs. And on a three-member panel, you're talking about a thirty-five to 40000 Swiss franc advance, which is an enormous amount of money mm. for, for really anyone. And, and there is an issue there. I mean, you can agree to a single panel, a single a one-member panel. It's not as ideal as a three-member panel. Mm-hmm. You don't get to choose the, at least somebody on your own. Um, it's sometimes the best you can do. But it, it's, it's a system that I don't know what the answer is, but there's got to be a way to allow athletes more access to be able to have that appeal and have a, a true independent opportunity to be heard. Yeah, I think it's... Um, uh, what do you think... I was going to give my opinion, but it's best to ask you because you're the expert <laughs> rather than give my opinion on the matter. But um, kind of a leading question really is, but what do you, f- one of the things that troubles me is the fact if you're a doper, right? If you're someone who's uh, taken a contaminated substance, sorry, a contaminated supplement, for example, and maybe you get a warning or a reduced sanction of some sort. And then if you're Lance Armstrong or the like, a sophisticated doper and, and you get, uh, much longer ban. You said you're defined as a doper, 
regardless of what your sanction is. Whereas if you're, you're um, so you don't get done for a speeding ticket, you're a criminal in theory, you've broken the law, but people don't call you a criminal. They go, oh, you, you, got, you had a speeding ticket. Well, I don't put in the same category as a murderer. For example. I know that's an, extreme, yeah. that's an extreme. How do you feel about that in terms of, particularly when we've got these disparate systems around the world, and, and, and as you said, um, the equality of the hearings is not the same, and therefore someone from uh, one country could be a doper for doing something relatively minor, not having strong representation, therefore get sanctioned, and now forevermore they're a doper, and everyone goes, oh, they're evil, you know, all the negative connotations that go with that. And then on the other side, um, you know, you could have uh, someone who's... Um, you know, been involved in a very sophisticated scheme, maybe got a reduced sanction, and they're going to argue all the time that I wasn't really doping that much. Yeah, it's it's difficult because different sections of the code allow for different relief. As an example, I represented Asafa Powell, who in effect served a 13-month ban, even though it was reduced to six because of the delays and the failure of process on Jamaica. And just just for those people who aren't familiar with that, just to outline what they. Asafa Powell is a world record holder for many years in the hundred meters, um, gold medalist in the Olympics. And he took a contaminated supplement. It was established pretty clearly. His hearing took almost nine months to complete on Jamaica, then another three months for his decision to come out. And by the time we finally got a cast decision, it was about 13 months in, but they reduced him to six months. Of course, he really served 13. Mm -hmm. You can't get those seven months back. But at the same time, Tyson Gay, who admitted to cheating, ended up getting 12 months because he was part of a substantial assistance program. He basically, the age-old sing like a canary, mm. uh, he gave up information, which helped USADA bring down some other people. But it didn't seem very fair to Asafa to sit there and say, how does Tyson Gay end up on the mm. track before I do? Yeah. And and it, it doesn't make a lot and, of sense. And they're, and they're both being defined from the history books. They're both defined as dopers, right? In the sense well, of... And there's in such a, a, and, right, and there's such a distinction between the conduct that occurred between those two. Yeah. And so, so say, for example, one of the things I thought was interesting with the Sharapova situation is that um, the Meladonium Meladoni- uh, cases, there's been, a, again, a whole range of Meladonium cases, and she came out, whether rightly or wrongly, they came out and said, look, hey, I was taking it, I didn't you know, I didn't know what was going on, and we know, you know people can argue the toss-over about whatever happened with the case, but the reality is that there's huge question marks about the, whether or not that's they've got any performance enhancement at all, and yet she's now a doper, and as we saw with the, um, uh, the French... Um, the French Open doesn't French, give her a wild card. They don't give her a wild card, but on the, on this principal basis, and you go, well, hold on, it's there. It's entirely their decision to do that, and I, I respect that, and I think, you know, that's fine. I think most people will respect it. She's dealt with it well, but it, I think it does raise a point, though. Again, that the public perception is you're a dope once you're a doper, regardless of whatever the circumstances are, you're you've got all the negative connotations, and that doesn't sit that well with me. Well, it doesn't. Also, when you read the Sharapova opinion, because the panel went out of its way to show to demonstrate that she's not a cheater. Mm. Many times they said those exact yeah, words. Yeah. This is not a cheater. This is somebody who should have been more careful, made a mistake, mm. trusted the wrong person, etc., but didn't knowingly intend to cheat. I mean, mm. there's got to be some distinction. Maybe we need to create an A-level doper yeah. and a B-level doper well, maybe and a C-level like, well, doper. Maybe not have the word doper, like is in the sense right. of maybe there's something else that's there or, or well, something. Technically, technically, you serve a period of ineligibility, it, but yeah. nobody calls it that. No. I mean, it's a ban and you're sanctioned and you're... It's difficult. It's, 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 it's interesting though, isn't it, from a, from, a, from a legal standpoint though. You think that it would be, given all the lawyers looking at it, it'd be great to be more specific about these um, about this issue, which has such a um, 
a positive or negative impact on an athlete's career. Well, I mean, I guess you, it's hard to educate the, the world and control how public the public reacts. The other players on tour who are coming out and saying she should be banned for life. I mean, it really is ridiculous, legally, morally, otherwise. If you look at what her conduct is, to say that is just, it's just piling on and not really being informed about what's going on. And in your experience, um, how well informed do you think now, given that the attention that anti-doping and doping gets both um, in the press, how well informed do you think the majority of athletes still are about about anti-doping, truly, not as in, if you get a bunch of sports lawyers together, obviously, who are anti-doping specialists, they're going to understand the wilder code, understand how to apply it, understand all the intricacies of it. If you're an athlete, how... how They live in a different world than we do. Mm-hmm. It's still astonishing. I get the same calls I've gotten for 10 years that they didn't know that the supplement was a dangerous supplement. They didn't understand. Uh, very experienced athletes who don't realize that certain medicines are banned and they need a therapeutic use mm-hmm. exemption. They just, they, they're in an athlete's world, they're focused on performance. They're focused on what they're doing, trying to improve almost all the time in the rule, under the rules. They're not, not most of the people I represent do not set out to end up in the system intentionally. It's, it's they end up there by accident. And um, I think there's an interesting point someone raised about um, the 400, the Belgian 400 meter runner, who his comments when he won in Rio was, um, about anti-doping when I think when he got when he got back actually he said uh, I don't know anything about it really but I'm not a cheat so what do I have to worry about <laughs> not really not, not, re- not, not actually thinking oh there could be a contaminated supplement case or he could take a medication inadvertently not realise that it's, it's banned because he thinks I'm just, I've got no intention to cheat Therefore, right of course and people who take a, a caffeine pill and don't realise that it's contaminated with something uh, it, it's been held over and over that it's beyond a burden under the code for athletes that they need to test everything before they have it. And what about contaminated food? Yeah. I, in the last year, I've had a contaminated kissing case and a contaminated water case and a contaminated food case. All of them got no faults. Um, are they on the same level as someone who's cheating? And was that, um, what were the thresholds of the substances? Were they all infinitesimally small? Yeah. It's interesting. Um, well, thank you very much for your time. I think we could, I could carry on talking with you about this at, at length, but I'm conscious that, um, one, you're busy. I'm busy as well, and we need to well, get back to the do conference. A se- we can do a sequel. We can do a sequel. Thanks a lot, Paul. I really appreciate My it. Pleasure. Always a pleasure.